Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. As we do so this evening, we're going to be talking about the majesty of the millennium, Revelation chapter 20. And on a cold evening, in which we witness so many things round about us that are troubling, I can't think of much better to talk about than the promise of the millennial kingdom. And so I have the privilege of talking about that this evening. We're going to do a whirlwind tour of the Millennial Kingdom tonight and have that concept in our hearts as we leave uh, from the service this evening. Revelation, the 20th chapter, the first verse. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. And set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ a thousand years." But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him, how long? A thousand years. The fundamentalist movement began as millenarians. The millenarian movement began by those who read God's Word in Revelation chapter 20 and read a thousand years and believed God means this to be literal. And I do believe that God does mean it to be literal. And so this evening we're going to be talking about the majesty of the millennium and it couldn't happen at a better time. David Barton wrote a book a number of years ago. It was under the title To Pray or Not to Pray. He gave correlation to what has happened in the American public schools and American culture since prayer was taken out of our schools back in 1963. Between 1963 and 1973, three court decisions were made that have radically changed our culture as we know it. 1963, prayer was taken out of the public schools. I think it was either 65 or 67, somewhere in that era that the Ten Commandments were taken out. Of course, abortion in the early 1970s. In his book, America to Pray or Not to Pray, he runs through some analyses of what has happened since prayer was removed from the public schools. He notes, we now have the largest or the highest illegitimate birth rate of any advanced culture in the world. Fornication among 15-year-olds is up to 50%, or I'm sorry, is up 500%. STDs are up 200%. SATs, the SAT scores, of course, continue to plummet. Uh, These considerations and many others ought to be to us more than interesting, for we know that where there is biblical morality, there will also be a culture that can know the blessings of God. And so we note tonight that conditions in the world are growing desperate, that violence is indeed increasing, There are challenges roundabout, whether it be wars or famines or political intrigue, and frankly, most of us are getting weary of hearing about all of the challenges. So many at-home challenges these days that we seldom even give consideration 
to things like nuclear proliferation. My son-in-law being from India, there's a lot of focus in conversation with his family on nuclear proliferation among the Pakistanis. That's not one we think about often. We do think about the Iranians. We think about the North Koreans. There are challenges. There's an escalation of Islamic fascism. And so as we look at these challenges this evening, we ought to be looking through the lens of God's Word and understanding that there is an end coming that God has promised, and that end is wonderful. Thank the Lord for it. The hope of the world is the kingdom of God. The hope of the world is the kingdom of God. We've been instructed to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. You realize the only word in the Lord's Prayer that's repeated is the word kingdom. We're to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And how does that prayer end? For thine is the kingdom, and the power and the glory forever. The hope of the world is the kingdom of God. It's the only word used twice in the Lord's Prayer. And it's interesting how even those who have no Bible find themselves fascinated with some of the kingdom promises that are found in the Bible. Back in 1959, the USSR gave a gift to the United Nations. The United Nations, of course, founded in 1945. That gift stands as a statuary outside of the United, Station, the United Nations in Lower Manhattan. What does it say under the statue? Well, the passage that is cited is from Isaiah 2 and verse 4. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and they shall study war no more. What a day that will be. And that day is a day that's promised with regard to the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year reign that's shared throughout the pages of God's Word. So this evening, we want to look at the kingdom of God that's prophesied. John Bright, in his book under the title, The Book of the Coming Kingdom of God, writes this, The concept of the kingdom of God involves, in a real sense, the total message of the Bible. Not only does it loom large in the teachings of Jesus, it is to be found in one form or another throughout the length and the breadth of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, thus stand together as two acts of a single drama. Act 1 points to its conclusion in Act 2, and without it the play is incomplete, unsatisfying thing. But Act 2 must be read in light of Act 1 else the meaning will be missed, for the play is organically one. The Bible is one book. And had we to give the Bible a title, says Bright, he says the concept of the kingdom is throughout it, and had we to give the, the title to the Bible, we might with justice call it, quote, the book of the coming kingdom of God. Alva J. McLean served in um, Indiana at Grace Theological Seminary for many years, Alva J. McLean proposed the writing of a seven-volume theology. <laughs> he started with the fifth volume knowing that it would be the hardest, and that's the only volume he did. It's over 500 pages. It's under the title, The Greatness of the Kingdom. Those who put their mind to study the kingdom from Genesis to the book of the Revelation find it is a huge study. But surely we can agree that the kingdom of God is prophesied in God's word. It is the expectation of the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament tells us that the kingdom that God intends to establish on this earth for how long? A thousand years. That the kingdom that he intends to establish will be in a capital, rather, in Jerusalem. The Lord shall reign, Isaiah 24 and verse 23, in Jerusalem gloriously. There will be a capital. The capital is Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that the reign in the kingdom, the reign of the Lord, will be universal. It will be all parts of the world, for the Lord will be king over all the earth, the word of God says. In Psalm 2 and verse 8, this very famous verse, I will give thee the uttermost parts of the earth. Revelation 12 and verse 5 speaks of that woman who brings forth a child. That man-child is to rule all of the nations. And so when we look at the concept of the kingdom in the Old Testament, uh, we discover immediately that Jerusalem is to be the epicenter of the kingdom. It will be the capital place. We discover it's a universal kingdom. Many other things that we discover, we discover that the ruler of that kingdom is going to be wonderful. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain for our sins, the Son of David, will reign gloriously in the kingdom. Now, the Old Testament's not the only place where we read about the kingdom, of course. We read about the kingdom in the New Testament, and it's much anticipated in the New Testament. As you move through the New Testament during Christ's earthly ministry, you'll find that Christ is with the disciples, and as the disciples wrestle with the concept of the kingdom, they're requesting that one will sit on the right hand and the other on the left in the coming kingdom. In the resurrection of Christ, what is it that they're talking about? Once again, Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, after the resurrection, the disciples are dialoguing, if you will, with the Lord. And the question, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, why would they ask restore again? What kind of political conditions were they under during this particular time? As they're talking to the Lord, he's, his earthly ministry is now behind. He's been crucified. He's risen from the dead. Before his ascension up in Acts chapter 1, the conversation returns to the kingdom. Wilt thou restore again? Why again? Yes, they're under Roman occupation, all right? They're under Roman rule. And before that, they had fought with the Grecians. And before that, they had fought with the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians. They had been under one occupation and rule after another. But the Roman rule had been going on now for quite some time. Will you restore again the kingdom? During Christ's ascended ministry, even after he's ascended up, listen to what the preaching of the apostles is in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, Peter preaches, repent and be converted, that the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing, that's an Old Testament concept that ties into the picture of the kingdom, the times of refreshing. In fact, there are some theologians who believe in Acts chapter 3 when Peter is preaching, repent ye therefore and be converted, he's preaching in Jerusalem, predominantly to Jews, about the times of refreshing. There are some who believe that this was a second offer of the kingdom, that the first offer of the kingdom was John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist preach? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what is it that Peter is preaching in Acts? 
Repent that the times of refreshing may come from the hand of the Lord. Some believe that there was an interlude, if you will, from the time of the ascension, as the early church was being established, that there was a second offer of the kingdom with the possibility that there would be a kingdom established had true repentance come. I'm not one that buys that theory, but it's worth sharing. But what I want you to note is the concept of the kingdom was so ingrained in the hearts of the disciples that in the ministry of Christ, they were asking for thrones. And after the ascension of Christ, they were asking when, or after the resurrection rather, and after the ascension, it's still in their hearts. The concept of the kingdom was very near and dear to the disciples during the time of the Lord's earthly ministry. There are many matters of interpretation that come along with considerations of the kingdom. Herman Hoyt, also from Grace Theological Seminary, said able men down through the history of the Christian church have had varied views with regard to the matter of the kingdom. I don't take the same position that Marvin Rosenthal takes with regard to the time of the rapture. But Rosenthal, for many years, has been the editor of Zion's Fire magazine and I like how he begins this article, The Importance of a Premillennial Theology. He starts this way. Millennium, like aluminum, has a nice resonant ring to it. Say it aloud and you hear the reverberation, millennium. But sadly, some people think that it's about the extent of the significance, that some people think that is about the extent of the significance of the word. They proudly proclaim, I'm not a premillennialist, postmillennialist, or amillennialist, I am a pan-millennialist, I can't even say it, a pan-millennialist. It will all pan out in the end. These people suggest that the millennium is a confusing subject which many, with many varying views. And since scholars stand on both sides of the issue, like the proverbial ostrich, they respond by putting their heads in the sand and pretend that the issue doesn't exist. That kind of an attitude is a pan-out. It's not a pan-out, rather, but a cop-out that dishonors the Lord. So when we talk about the kingdom, there are those who believe that we're living in it now. And I have to say, if we're living in it now, I am of all men most miserable. Okay, so how do they do that? You'll hear this in conversation. Just put an antenna up. I'm not offended by the conversation, but I want to be discerning in it. So there are those who will talk about when we engage in gospel sharing, we're doing kingdom work. Maybe you've heard that. Or perhaps you've heard somebody say, well, Jesus Christ is the king of our hearts. So he, he's ruling and reigning in our hearts today. And there is a certain aspect to that being true. But that's a spiritualizing of the concept of the kingdom. And I don't think that spiritualizing does justice to the revelation of the kingdom that's found from Genesis to Revelation. Let me back into that and say it a different way. From Genesis to Revelation, you have a literal kingdom, a thousand-year reign. Revelation chapter 20 is very clear, right? We read it over and again, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. And very clear that in order for those conditions to be enjoyed, Satan is going to have to be bound. So I believe in a literal 1,000-year millennial kingdom. So when someone says, well, isn't Jesus reigning in our hearts now? Eh. And so, there are some within a theological camp that's called progressive dispensationalism. 
A progressive dispensationalist says, already, not yet. Already, Christ is reigning in our hearts, but not yet. The total literal kingdom has come. I'm careful about that. I'm a literalist when it comes to the kingdom. and I'll show you why in just a moment. Of course, there are those who are amillennial. Bummer. <laughs> the amillennialist says, nah, it's just all figurative language, and there's really not going to be any literal kingdom. You realize that if you take the position of the amillennialist and say, no, there's no kingdom, you have radically changed the way you will read your Bible. All of the Old Testament prophecies with regard to the kingdom. Why pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done, if there's no kingdom? Point of fact is, there's going to be a kingdom if you read your Bible literally. One-third of your Bible is prophetic. If you approach your Bible reading the prophecies figuratively, allegorically, you will read your Bible in a very different way. And you'll be troubled because if you're figurative and allegorical in that one-third of the Bible that is prophetic, then what do you do with the other portions of the Bible that are whether they be historic or whether they be the tutelage with regard to our salvation? I'm a literalist consistently, and that includes on matters of prophecy. So when it comes to matters of interpretation, some have a national view. They'll say, well, the kingdom, that's just for Israel. But we've already seen. He's going to rule over all the earth. Others make it spiritual. Some consider the kingdom to be an ethical or a social concept. And you find those even now. There are some who will say, well, if you're so literal and you think Matthew 5, 6, and 7 has to do with the kingdom because that's the Sermon on the Mount, you can't really preach the Sermon on the Mount, right? Wrong. The Sermon on the Mount gives us moral, um, moral instruction for every dispensation. But it will indeed be fulfilled during the time of the kingdom. Now, I just went a little bit deep there. and It's a Wednesday night. And there are some people in this room tonight who have already had their dinner, and there are other people who are wishing for it. So we'll get off the deep parts tonight and move on, all right? Just know this. The early church believed in a literal kingdom because that's what I believe, and I think you'll see that the Bible teaches a literal kingdom. You see, there are three necessary ingredients. Make it simple. You can't have a kingdom without these three necessary ingredients. You have to have a ruler, a ruler. Thine eyes shall see the king, a ruler. Now this comes from Alva J. McLean. In his 500-page book on the greatness of the kingdom, if you were to narrow down the thesis of the book into a few short statements, this statement would be preeminent. There are three necessary ingredients to have a kingdom. You have to have a ruler. You have to have a realm. Isaiah 52 and verse 10 does not say he will rule in hearts. Isaiah 52 and verse 10 says all the ends of the earth shall see him. Which leads us to say you have to have a ruler, a realm, and a reign. For the Lord of hosts will reign. Folks, Jesus Christ has not yet reigned over all the earth gloriously. But he will. He will. And what a day that's going to be. And so we ask, of course, immediately, what will it be like on that day when he, when he rules gloriously? And these are the promises that thrill our hearts. They're familiar to most of us. And so we just hit them lightly as we pass by. We have the promise of geological change. Isaiah 40 and verse 4 says that every valley shall be made low and every mountain will be exalted. 
Well, what's he talking about? He's talking in that passage about in preparation for the coming of the king. There's going to be a ginormous geological change. Are there those who are familiar with the theories with regard to why people in the early days of creation lived so long? And by the way, we're going to discover in the kingdom they'll live long again. So there are those, some agree, some disagree, but there are those who believe that they're in the greenhouse theory, that the earth was almost a, a, a gigantic terrarium where the sunlights were being filtered, the ultraviolet and infrared rays which caused the aging process, that those light rays were filtered. And so as you look in the early chapters of Genesis, you'll find people living in extraordinarily long lives. There are some uh, scientific uh, studies ongoing right now uh, with regard to, regard to pressurized oxygenation of the body and how it uh, helps produce healing as well as longevity. So perhaps you've read some of that. There are those who believe that that terrarium will be restored. After all, the days of the flood, the heavens were broken up as well as the fountains of the deep and that the heavens will be restored and restore that formation that caused uh, longevity in the days before the flood. But we know this, the mountains and the valleys will change. We know there'll be zoological change, right? We all know about the lion and the lamb. Isaiah 11 says in verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And that won't be the first time. Remember back in the book of Genesis when, when uh, Noah comes almost said Adam comes off the ark. That'd be a giant mistake. When Noah comes off the ark, when Noah comes off the ark, uh, he and his family are instructed that of all uh, the animals, they're able to eat. And with that instruction, uh, there are, myself included, there are those who believe before uh, the flood that all the animals were vegetable eating. They were all vegetarians. And after the flood, there was a change uh, in their dietary intake, and that change is going to happen again uh, in the kingdom or in the millennium, and that's why the lion and the lamb are lying down together. I'll make a covenant with them with the beasts of the fields, God has said in Hosea 2 and verse 18. There'll be a meteorology. <laughs> I can't talk tonight. Um, you can read it. There'll be a big change in the skies, okay, uh, that will allow the desert to rejoice and blossom as a rose, Isaiah 35 and verse 1. There are those who look at Israel today and see uh, the changes that have been made since Israel has occupied uh, that land that's uh, their native home. And there have indeed been enormous changes, uh, but the changes will be monumental in the times of the kingdom. There'll be physical changes. The eyes of the blind should be opened. The ears of the deaf should be unstopped. And our Lord proved some of that during his earthly ministry, but he's going to accomplish that and more during his kingdom ministry. Judicial changes, what a blessing this is. Zechariah 9 and verse 11, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit. He's talking about justice. He cometh to judge the earth with righteousness. Shall he judge the world and the people with equity? Doesn't your heart cry for that this evening? That there'll be equity in our world at last. Wonderful changes when the kingdom comes. Political changes. The government shall be upon his shoulder. There'll be no question about the election. God, the Father, has already established that. Psalm 2 says that he will rule. There'll be spiritual changes. 
Ezekiel 43 and verse 7, I'll dwell in the midst of the children of Israel. I was teaching in uh, Lebanon just a few years ago. And when you teach in Lebanon, and uh, Brother Matt can attest to this, uh, Lebanon does not res- recognize Israel in any way. When you come into to Lebanon, um, you better not have anything in your, on your person that, that identifies you with Israel. When Linda and I flew into Lebanon, she had a little patch on the back of her passport we were not aware of, and it was a little sticker from Israel, and there was Hebrew letters on it. And so we were asked at customs coming in, have you been to Israel? And uh, that's a long story. We won't go into it tonight, but it, it caused for some intrigue. Um, Lebanon does not re- recognize Israel. So here I am teaching in Lebanon, and they told me, don't put any Israeli flags in your PowerPoints. Uh, try to be careful in, you know, even talking about Israel. When you go to the national parks in Lebanon and you look south of the Lebanese border, it just says Palestine. There is no Israel on the map in Lebanon anywhere. So I put a map up in front of them, and I showed them the boundaries of the Abrahamic covenant, how it goes from Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates, and I circled it on my PowerPoint, and I said, now all this area from Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates, which is Iraq, so that would include Jordan, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Israel, (laughs) Syria. I'm going through all the different nations. I said all this, and I circled it. Well, one day to be Israel, and I've told you about this before, I said, how do you feel about that? And the Iraqi guy who knew enough English to get by says, so-so. He wasn't real happy thinking about Israel one day, uh, ruling over Iraq. But there's going to be a spiritual change in Israel. And what I tried to explain to them is, Israel won't be like it is today. Today, Israel biologically is in the land, but spiritually is in need of the revival. Ezekiel talks about those bones coming together, but the wind has not yet blown. And Ezekiel 37 and 38 speak about that wind blowing. There'll be kingdom changes. There'll be emotional changes. They will break forth into singing, Isaiah 14, verse 7. And by the way, we're hitting this quickly. If you want to go back and look up these passages and just revel in what the kingdom will be like, I'd encourage you to do so. Zephaniah 3 and verse 9 says, Then will I turn the people into a pure language. There's going to be a conversational change. And even guys like Matt Barfield back there who can greet people in about 50 different languages can rejoice in this. I believe that God's going to give us one pure language once again. And all around the globe, we'll be speaking in that language. When I I was a child, my father was in seminary. And I can remember him sitting in the front room of our house with uh, flashcards learning Hebrew. It was his Hebrew vocabulary cards. I said, what are you doing, Dad? And he said, I'm learning the language of heaven. He said, I want to be ready for when I get to heaven to be able to speak what they speak. I don't know if they'll speak Hebrew Hebrew in heaven. Hebrew is a guttural language. It'd be sad to be speaking a guttural language in heaven, wouldn't it? With all those uh, crashing sounds. But there'll be enormous changes in the kingdom. When we talk about the kingdom procured, we ought to recognize who will be there. The Old Testament saints will be there. We've looked several times on Wednesday nights at the last verses of the book of Daniel where Daniel is told to go his way because he would rest. Daniel chapter 12, Go thy way, Daniel, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot in the latter days. Daniel was exploring prophetic themes in Daniel chapter 12, and he was asking God, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And God says to Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, that's enough. 
Go thy way. You'll rest. You'll die. But here's the promise. Daniel, you're going to stand in your lot. Now, remember, somebody help me out here a little bit. That, that's precious to all of us. That there, there's no one, more wonderful comfort to the believer than the comfort of seeing Christ and the resurrection. And we rejoice in that. But put yourself in Daniel's sandals for a moment. He's living in Babylon. How did he get there? He was taken captive. How long has he been there? Seventy years. What did he open his window and pray for three times a day? For Jerusalem and for God to restore the people of Israel. I believe that Daniel was likely there to see the events that we've been considering on Sunday nights that Ezra talks about when Cyrus released the prisoners and they were able to go back. Daniel lived 70 years and was able to see the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy that the children of Israel would be 70 years in captivity. But now remember, Daniel, as an aged man, is having a conversation about the future. And in that conversation about the future, he's saying, tell me more. And God says this to comfort him. You're going to rest. You're going to die. Jesus told John that too, right? John was asking about I'm sorry, Peter was asking about John and, and John would overhear the conversation that he, would, uh, that he didn't have to worry about. Peter didn't have to worry about John. John would grow old. And Peter was prophesied that he would die, as was Daniel. But the comfort that God gave to Daniel was you will rest and you will stand in your lot. And so for that Old Testament saint whose focus had been the kingdom, the worldwide global kingdom, when the seed of David would sit upon the throne, what a precious promise for him to go out with, if you don't mind me saying it that way. The church will be in the kingdom. After all, uh, we look forward to that day when the dead in Christ will rise and uh, we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them uh, to meet the Lord in the air. And those who survive the tribulation will go into the kingdom. And then you'll see those who are born again. And I apologize if your outline doesn't match up completely. I hope it does. But the Old Testament saint, the church saint, those who survived the tribulation, and those who were born during the millennium. Yes, there'll be many multitudes born during the millennium. After all, the millennium is not just populated by the resurrected and glorified bodies, but it's also populated by those who survive the seven-year tribulation and begin to have natural-born children. In fact, there are many who will be in the kingdom but one thing's for sure, and we end with this, I guess we don't have a PowerPoint to match it, the salvation. The only way to have confidence that you'll live in God's kingdom is to be certain that you're born again. Except a man be born again, he cannot, what? See what? The kingdom of God. Born, to be born again is always the pathway for entrance into the kingdom. I picked up a couple of articles a number of years ago. What, what do the Jewish people today, think right now about if you're a news follower, a news junkie like I am, so situations in New York have caused um, synagogues to be closed in New York City, and uh, this has not been a, a real nice time. A lot of people are noticing a rise in anti-Semitism. I intend to speak about that in January as a contemporary Christian concern, because it definitely is on the rise. What, what are they, if I say it this way, what are they living for? What are they looking forward to, these Jewish congregations? Way back in 1991, I stuck this in my file. 
This is a, an article under the headline, Hopes for a Messiah, and there's a picture of a, a Jewish man, a rabbi, blowing a ram's horn. It starts this way. Return in mercy to Jerusalem, your city, and dwell therein as you have promised. Speedily cause the scion of David, your servant, to flourish and increase his power by your salvation. For we hope for your salvation every day. That prayer for the rebuilding of the temple and the coming of the Messiah was recited three times a day by observant Jews in the Amida part of the weekday prayer service. Rabbi Sneerson has spoken more and more infrequently over the past year of the Messiah who Jews believe will reunite all Jews in the land of Israel and bring peace and harmony and the kingdom to the world. That was 1991. Well, Rabbi Sneerson died. Google Rabbi Sneerson sometime. It's an interesting study. I've got a picture of him up here. I'm sure it's doing you a lot of benefit for me to hold it up there for you like that. That's his beard. It's impressive. It says, for almost half of his 92 years, Sneerson inspired and overawed the 250,000 members of his ultra-Orthodox Lubavitch sect, fleeing the Holocaust, Lubavitchers, who took their name from the 18th century Belarusian village, where the group was founded, sought safety and seclusion in the crown heights of Brooklyn. Still, many Lubavitchers are sure that Sneerson is the Messiah, and they expect his imminent resurrection. He died, and 250,000 in that sect are looking for him to be the resurrected Messiah. Israel continues to look today for a literal kingdom. To come along as the church and say, oh, no, 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 no. Those promises of the Old Testament that you think are literal, they're, they're now within us. They're within our hearts. No, no time to go to this this evening, but there's a passage where Jesus stands in the midst of the Pharisees and he says, the kingdom of God is within you. Sometimes you'll hear people cite that phrase, but without the context. Is he saying to the, the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is within their heart? Literally, he's saying the kingdom of God is in your midst. And so if you hear someone say, no, no, the kingdom of God is within us, look at the context of that passage. He's talking to the Pharisees. The kingdom of God is in their midst because the king was in their midst. But it's not a transference into the heart. There's coming a literal day of a thousand-year reign. And those of us who are news junkies are really looking forward to that right now. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.